from Los Angeles, California. This is the Writer's Strike Chronicles, and I'm Tanya Barnes. Hello, everybody. Today is Monday, January 28th, 2008, day 86 of the Writer's Strike. In today's episode, Bill and I continue a series of interviews at the picket lines to ask writers about their feelings regarding the terms of the tentative agreement between the DGA and the AMPTP. We'll begin with writers Lisa Levin and Dan Gunselman. Here, we also get their take about ageism in Hollywood and on the media, as well as piracy in China. Okay, I'm talking to two people here, and who are they? Dan Gunselman. Okay. Lissa Levin. Lissa Levin. Okay. And uh, how long have you been in the guild? Oh, man, at least 25 years. Okay. At least. At least 25 years. Are are you two writing partners? No, we're just married. Oh, you're just married? Yeah. Oh, okay. That's lovely. What got you in the guild? Uh, I was hired for a TV show, WKRP in Cincinnati. Mm -hmm. Oh, my God. And guild membership went along with it and and it always was a a hallmark that you were a professional you could tell everyone you're a writer and they said yeah sure give me two extra burgers but if you're in the WGA then you were really a writer there you go and you I also got my start on WKRP in Cincinnati we both met on WKRP in Cincinnati and we got married by virtue of WKRP in Cincinnati did you get married by anyone on WKRP? <laughs> no one was qualified to marry anyone on that show. Okay. Then. Okay. Right, right. Yes, a few a few of the cast have taken uh, minister correspondence courses since then. This is true. But, um, Reverend Hessman. So, right, right. So, um, so you've been involved with some other strikes as well. You were in the 88 one before yes. that. And, yes. Um, but that was the first one, right? See, I can recall two strikes, but when people talk about it, they talk about more than that. I can remember the big strike, mm-hmm. which was 88, mm-hmm. and I can remember another very short-lived... Was this like around 81 or something? Yeah, there was some short-lived strike, too. Okay, okay. Had you worked in other industries prior to this? And if so, did you ever strike in those? No. No? I, no, I was a member of the United Auto Workers, okay. and I was an IA cameraman out of Chicago. Oh, okay, okay. And did you ever strike no. in that capacity? No? no. But you must have known people that did. Sure. Okay. And I'm from a, a family with a labor background, you know, working class background, so... Okay, the okay. Concept He's of from a... Ohio. Yeah. Okay, okay. So, um, how do you feel like it's going? I mean, God, we're so many weeks into this now, and... Uh, the DGA just had their agreement. Uh, do you, uh, were you happy with the deal? I'm a member of the DGA as well. Oh, okay. So, okay. yes. Okay. <laughs> and the short answer is I don't think it's going well. No? And I think it's been mishandled. Say more about that. Um, I think there was a certain confrontational approach to this, and we're going to redefine what a labor union is in Hollywood, and I don't think that's helpful, and I think... The DGA approach of their $2 million study and what it had to say and their general approach as to where we are right now with new media, I thought that was a more productive road as opposed to making settling old scores. I didn't care for that. Mm-hmm. Or, quite honestly, picketing. Because <laughs> I thought that the, the idea of going out on strike on the first day you can, mm-hmm. that's like shooting your wad on the first day rather than threatening to do it. Mm-hmm. I don't quite understand why that was a, a good thing. And then today, since you asked the question, the big news driving here was, well, the Grammy show can go ahead. And it mm-hmm. was like, big fucking deal. 
I don't understand. To me, the Golden Globes would have been a perfect opportunity to let it go and let every actor thank them for the award and then thank the Writers Guild, who they're supportive of, for letting the show go ahead and get a lot of publicity. The Grammys don't really matter. I don't really connect that to anything the Writers Guild is doing. So I think it's been mishandled from the top. But the goals are fine. I think yeah. the goals are great. Yeah. What do you think is going to happen with the Oscars? It's going to go ahead. It'll go ahead. You're going to go ahead. Yeah. yeah. Okay. What do you think about the NWACP awards? I don't. I don't know. You're talking about when they. What I, I think they're great. No, 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 no. That they've they've been given a. I'm all for them. Yeah. <laughs> um, that's why they represented here. No, no. I didn't hear that. I didn't hear the news. So this is the first I'm hearing of it. Okay. Okay. I think all that's fine. It's totally compromises I think, your credibility. I just want to. Say. No, but my <laughs> point is, all those award shows should be given a pass, because then every actor who, in general. And every performer who would probably agree with the Writers Guild would walk up with a little ribbon or a thing and supporting it, and that would do more than 300 people walking around Paramount. Were you guys uh, currently working in the business when this happened? I know. Well, it's hard to say. I'm, I was writing screenplays trying to sell them, and I've sold one or two that no one will ever see. Okay. That's what I'm doing right now. Okay. So in that sense, I was working. Yes, yes. And you? I was in the middle of adapting a novel for a series in conjunction with a production entity for Oxygen at the time, and everything, you know, stopped. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right, so we got two writers in the house, and, uh, you know, I mean simple question how is this affecting you guys personally at this at this moment because of when it hit us in our career it's really okay mm-hmm. because of past work and you know everything else mm-hmm. so it's really okay you know it's I, I'm at a point in my career where I'm not making the lion's share of my money from being a writer mm-hmm. so it's really okay right he was the executive producer of Growing Pains for six years oh okay and so that was, you know, Julie course, McCulloch is a friend of mine. Oh, is that right? Yeah. yeah. So anyway, she wasn't. You know. She wasn't gotten rid of because Kirk complained. Oh, yeah, she wasn't. No, that. that's oh. the story they all ask. Yeah, that's wasn't. what they all say. Oh, sorry. Yeah. I, I'm dying to know why she was, but well, she gosh, was gotten that isn't rid of because the kids. Mike's role was, you know, the irreverent son, you know, the loose cannon. Mm-hmm. And if you got him in a committed relationship, uh-huh. he no longer is a loose cannon. You know, he's so compromise a character. It was not the actress. She was supposed to be his first serious relationship, not the one he married. Yeah. Oh, goodness gracious, Julie McCulloch, if you're listening, have I got news for you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. But anyway, we were fortunate to do the bulk of our work during the '80s when just you know money just flowed and work flowed and sitcoms were king, etc. Right. And so uh, we know people who have not worked as long as we have, mm-hmm. who are entirely compromised by this. And of course, more and more reality shows are being developed in support, of course, of you know the producer situation, which increasingly you know screws particularly the half-hour writer. Mm-hmm. You said you're not making your money primarily oh. from writing. Are you? Are you doing? Anything else? No, I park cars. You park. No, um, I'm uh, uh, I'm partly retired. Mm-hmm. You know, partly the savings that I accrued and the ownership of the series that I was a part of. Right. You know, I mean that really is the main source of mm-hmm. of my income right now. Right. Right. Because I know this will be shocking, but no one really cares that much about a 59 year old writer's point of view nowadays. I'm not complaining. I do. Well, I know, but you're you're an odd person. Uh, what do you really say? How did he what know? I'm really saying is no one cares about older writers on any level. And when I was a young showrunner, 
I didn't particularly want to hear from writers in their 50s. I'm more identified with writers who were my age or younger. It just is it's like a natural order. So I don't begrudge that, but that's really the truth of it. You Do you know? think the medium is just a young person's medium? Are you talking about the production of it or the enjoyment of it? The enjoyment of it. Enjoyment of it, yes. I think everything... I think that the heart and soul of American television can be found in advertising. That shows what audience they're pleasing. And almost every ad is aimed for a really young audience, and that's fine. It's a shame there isn't a channel that aims for a slightly older audience, but there isn't. But you can create a channel like that on the Internet. Um, you can, but it but needs older the... older people tend not to use the Internet as much as younger people. You would need the legitimacy of a real network. I mean, there was talk a few years ago, there was talk a few years ago of some network that was aimed for people in their 50s and Norman Lear or someone connected with them was going to be a part of it, but I never heard what happened to it. And it's not that... I just find that the main thrust, if you're doing a show of people in their 20s who are good friends and go to a coffee shop, say, and they're going to hang out there and they're going to deal with dating and relationships, the last thing they want to see is a guy in his 50s come in with his take on that. It's a, it just simply, you know, doesn't fly. But I also differ a bit from his opinion because while all of that is very true, all you need is a David Crane or a Larry David, etc., yeah. and you have something that really has a wide audience, and I think that the more people that you have like that, and the more people that are employed like that, the more people of that age that will be employed, because it is true, people tend to hire from within their friends and their age bracket, and they just tend to do that. But and that their dad, color, too. So that's very true. So... Um, I don't entirely agree. It's the same. Agree. It's the same thing. Like you know, for years, uh, half-hour shows, you know, were slowing down, and then there's always that resurgence. There's always a Cosby Show or a Friends or a Seinfeld or a, you know, uh, Everybody Loves Raymond, and suddenly it comes back again because people like a story, you know, and reality shows. You know, obviously they're cheaper, but you have one or two successes in the half-hour format, and suddenly people are going, I can't watch this anymore. I mean, even American Idol is losing numbers in its opening show. So. And by the way, you had mentioned WKRP, and you said that you had a stake in that. Now, that just came out on... Oh, oh no, I don't have a stake in that. I, that's no. where I first started. Oh, okay. It's Growing Pains... And, oh, okay. And okay. other shows at Warner's. Okay. But now both of those just came out on DVD, right? Uh, Growing Pains did, I think, the first season. I'm okay. not really sure. Right, right, right. And so did the did the release of that give you any of a foretaste about how... No. No? None. None. No. None whatsoever? None. Just... The real money in, in half-hour sitcom from that era is uh, syndication sales, mm-hmm. foreign sales. Right. That's the real source of the money. Right. For writers. Or for, uh, for anybody. Well, you see, it, it goes. I have no idea what the sales numbers are on, say, the Growing Pains first season, mm-hmm. but I don't think they're high. And my only judgment of that is, if you go in a store like, it could be Blockbuster or Target or something, you'll see which ones are moving because those are the ones that are featured. You'd be hard pressed to find the first year of Growing Pains. I don't, I don't think it's a show that's moving. So I don't. I don't know how much money would be generated in that whole first season. Right. But it's very big in China. (laughs) (laughs) We just got back from China. It is huge in China. He is a rock star in China. Something about diminutive stars that does very well over there. It does. Well, we realize that one of the... But is it pirated in China? It is, but but where it does well in China is they show it on the air, and all these kids grew up with it who are now in their 20s, 
and they have such great affection. I mean, we were at two universities lecturing on growing pains. If you can believe it, people are screaming and holding up pictures of the cast. It's the oddest sensation in the world. Lining up to get his autograph. And one of the things is it's an oddity because in China you're restricted to having one child. So here, ultimately, on that show, there were four children, and it's intriguing to them to see this. And in China, if you have, like, a domestic sitcom there, they have to explain it with it's a foster child, it's a second marriage, it's... Uh, you cannot state oh. that you have more than one child naturally within a family sitcom. It's very bizarre. That's great. But pretty, but pretty intriguing. But he also directed a film that he sold directly to Disney, which um, you know, which is Disney Video. But again, you know, it's one of those deals of you have to be usually within a certain bracket and known for directing things within that bracket in order to garner attention. One last question for both of you. Uh, Which do you think, uh, legacy notwithstanding, which do you think was the uh, more influential invention, the Internet or the printing press? At this moment in time? The printing press. At this moment. Say more. Well, the printing press is why we're standing here and we can talk to each other and everything, most everything I know I read. And even on the Internet, I read. I've yet to just, you know, bring in information. But I think that information, the internet will become more and more important. Famous and infamous as bad information spreads. That's a tough one. I think it's kind of a trade-off because I think that you know, certainly printing press people were educated, but the internet is connecting people, companies, entities, worlds so quickly that I just think you can reach more people uh, so much more quickly. I think ultimately the internet I've sold myself. Those are two very different and compelling arguments. Is this why the two of you have not actually worked together professionally? That's not true. We have actually worked together on a couple of shows. See, they don't even agree on whether or not they work together. No, we were employed, but we didn't work together. together. We've never written as a writing team, but we've worked together on two shows. But it was always a constant thing where one of us would be in development, another would get a show, then you'd be committed, and then you'd get something else. And so it never quite met up, but for two shows we worked together. Got it. I have a question about an iPod show. Yes. Why do you do it? Because I have to. <laughs> I don't know what that means. I have to. Um, I do I do an independent podcast that I don't care to mention right now. And then when the strike happened, I knew I could transfer my skill set over to this. And otherwise, I'd be sitting at home waiting for the strike to end. In a perfect world, would you be able to support yourself doing podcasts? Not at this time. No, but in a perfect world. Oh, in a perfect would world. I would goal? love it. Yeah, okay. that'd be awesome. Yeah. Well, Absolutely. In a perfect world, we'd be writing things for it. <laughs> That's true. Which we ultimately feel, you know. And in a perfect world, I'd still be saying thank you both very much. So much. Thank you. And I'd be three inches taller. There you go. <laughs> That was Lisa Levin and Dan Gunzelman at the picket line in front of Paramount Studios. Next up is writer Ron Moskowitz. As we roll into this recording, I'd like to share with you that Ron happens to be a personal friend, and I kind of hit him with an inside joke during this interview. Sorry, Ron, but the smile on your face was priceless. Okay, I'm here at the picket lines in front of Paramount Studios. 
for Martin Luther King Day, but it's the day after Martin Luther King Day, but whatever, with uh, Ron Moskovitz. And Ron, I've interviewed you before a couple of weeks, no, wow, months ago. Yeah, it was at the Fox rally, the the first big rally we had after the strike started. Yeah, okay, um, how's it been for you since the last time I saw you? It's been good, you know, I've been out almost every day, walking the lines, and uh, I've, you know, it's, you never want to say that you're happy to be on strike, because obviously we all want to be back to work, but... As far as strikes go, I've met some great people. I actually, you know, in, if I'm not going to be working, I would rather be out here walking with my friends yeah. and meeting new people than not. I mean, hopefully, hopefully we'll come to a deal real soon, a fair deal. But while we're waiting, I, it's going about as well as you could expect. Okay. And uh, going on the picket lines daily, has it affected your creative process at all? By affected, do you mean destroyed? You know, I haven't. It's been hard for me because I found that it's very exhausting. You you you're out here for three or four hours. You're walking six or seven miles. Uh, a couple of people I know have been bringing pedometers out, so we actually know. And you don't feel like you're working that hard, but you get home and you're just wiped. And so it takes a while to recharge and re-energize the batteries and get going again. That's been a little bit of a struggle for me. I haven't been as creative as I would have liked. I haven't been not creative at all. But um, it's it's the it's just the physical nature of it. Yeah. So, yeah. Can you comment or riff on the American Dream? <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, the American Dream. You're giving it much thought at all? Uh, not particularly, okay. but no, well, you know, I can try. Okay. Uh, you know, the American Dream is that opportunity is available for you if you grab it and that's a good thing to remember because I think a lot of times we hold ourselves back and you know the other thing that people forget is there's some people who don't like talking about the American dream because it feels very you know well sort of America centric but it's one of those interesting things you talk to a lot of people from around the world and there is a unusually unique place that America holds in the public imagination worldwide not just that they hate us for bombing Iraq but the sense of it being a country where you can come as an immigrant and you can't you know this is what my father's grandparents did and be successful and integrate into society in ways that is much harder to do in other countries and we forget that here that there really is the open frontier of unbounded opportunity more here not that it doesn't exist elsewhere but it's more here than almost anywhere else okay and the reason I turned on the uh, device is what I really wanted to get was um, you're wearing a shirt that says I got lost in a city of books so my question is to you yes. what is the more powerful invention the internet or the printing press well I'm going to go with the printing press and for a couple reasons first of all just historically you don't have an internet if you don't have a printing press and, but the extent to which we like to think that the internet has democratized information and it has, I don't want to disparage that but the notion of the, the printing press is what led to universal literacy it, you know, before the printing press you know, even something like the Bible was only being read in Latin. It was not available to the people. And and it's almost hard for us to conceive of a society where the overwhelmingly vast majority of people are illiterate. And you think about the change that the printing press led to 
us all being able to read what's out there, that's an amazing change. Sorry. Yeah, yeah, I know, I know. We've had a little technical difficulty. All right, is that was that your last statement on that? Um, yes. Okay. <laughs> Anything, any parting shots, any misconceptions about the strike you want to clear up? Anything you wanted to say as we wrap this up? All, all every writer I've spoken to is looking forward to getting back to work, but not until we get a good deal, uh, a fair deal from the AMPTP. It's nice because it sounds like for the first time that the AMPTP actually wants to negotiate with us, which they did not before. And that means that we might be going back to work soon, and I think that's something that's going to make everybody happy. That would be awesome. Okay, thank you so much. Sure thing. That was Ron Moskowitz at the picket line in front of Paramount Studios. Coming up in our final interview for today is Bobby Gaylor. Okay, I'm uh, here with Bobby Gaylor. Introduce yourself, Bobby. Hi, Bobby Gaylor. Uh, I don't know what else to say. Writer. I worked on Roseanne, Bernie Mac, Becker. Yeah, that's all good. Yes. What got you in the guild? Roseanne. Oh, okay. That was my first show. Okay. Um, How did that come about? Uh, basically, I had been a stand-up, you know, and you out there doing it, and then I wanted to change my life, so I called up a few people I know and said, hey, is there any jobs available, like, especially for punch-up, because I didn't even have any spec scripts, and uh, it just turned out, well, yeah, we're looking for some punch-up people, and that turned into, wow, you're really funny, and Roseanne going, how about working on the show? I'm going to give you a job. Forget punch-up, and hired me on staff two days later. And I didn't know Roseanne played Krusty the Clown. She that was- did. That's it's based on Roseanne. Really? She was just a great person to me, and a lot of people in this business. She gave their first break to you know a lot of guys that went on to create their own shows and be showrunners, whether they want to thank her or not. She gave them a break when they had no credits, no nothing. She just liked their writing and gave them their first job, like me. That's cool. So and you worked on her talk show too, didn't you? I did not work on her talk show. I performed on her talk oh, show. Oh, okay. okay. Um, at the time when she was doing her talk show, I had a spoke word CD on Atlantic Records that I ended up having a hit single that played around the world called Suicide. And so I went on with a six-piece band and performed live on her show, two of the cuts from my CD. That was one of them. Right. All right, now, Bobby, I've seen you out here just about every day, unlike some people. Sure. Uh, so you've been, obvious, obviously, you're pretty impassioned about this. How do you, I mean, all this time later, how do you keep going? Well, it, it really is. I think it's very simple. And almost everybody I talk to that's still going, because there's so many people that are still going, is that it's for the right reason. You know what I mean? We're not asking for the world. We're just asking for a fair share that literally, you know, even you take this thing that just happened with the Directors Guild, for instance, right? Well, why didn't they offer, like, you know, way back in the day when they said, okay, we're going to come to the table and and negotiate in good faith, why didn't they offer us that deal back then? Because as you you start a negotiation, you say, well, here's what we're willing to offer, and then the other side goes, no, 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 we want this, and that's how it begins. But they didn't come to the table with that. They came to the table with, we're not going to give you anything, and matter of fact, we're going to roll back. We want to take away all residuals. So you could have come in good faith if you really believe you were coming in good faith with a deal like that to give us a chance to respond and go, well, that isn't a good deal. We actually want this. Or, well, let us think about that. But they didn't. So now here it is three months later. Look what we gave the writers and, I mean, the, the directors and blah, blah, blah. And you're like, yeah, but 
you didn't want to give us anything. So, you know, it's not like you guys are this great team of people. And, ooh, the writers are just a bunch of whiny assholes that just want everything. So that I think, you know, you keep positive out here and everybody I see, like, I don't know about you guys, but as you walk around today, everybody's pretty upbeat. Even though not only is it three months into a strike, it's raining off and on, yet everybody's out here. I don't know how many people are here today, but must be a thousand or two, I would imagine, right, making the rounds. And everybody's up because it is the right thing. Right. And we have to and Not to mention strong. that it was Martin Luther King Day yesterday. Absolutely, absolutely. That's a big thing as well, you know. And it's like, but you, you know, you realize that no matter what the directors took as a deal, mm-hmm. it, it's it may be right for them or it may be wrong. They may cave. I don't know because I haven't seen the numbers of the deal yet. All you read is you know what the trades say about the deals, and you know, taking into consideration that the trades are owned by some of the same companies that own the studios and the networks, and they own newspapers and book companies. They own a lot of things. So until we actually get to see the numbers as members as opposed to just our leaders, then we'll get to see, okay, that isn't a good deal. Mm-hmm. And that's what keeps you going out here, because even if it is a good deal for the directors, it might not be a good deal for the writers, because our needs are different than what their needs are. And I'm not even sure what directors need, because I'm not a director, so I don't actually know what it is that they need out of a deal. So that's something I can't answer. Right. Well, good thing I didn't ask. Yes. Um, now, unlike some people that we talk to here, you are a uh, stand-up and writer in other means. I mean, what, what have you been able to work on since the strike that is not in... Um, you know, I, I kind of adopted the not work on anything okay. kind of thing. You know, I really like the thought of that. You know, if you don't work on anything, it kind of helps the cause as well. Mm-hmm. So I haven't worked on anything, even for myself. I haven't even written an idea on a napkin yet, you know, at a restaurant. Like, you know what I should do? I have a movie like that. I've just kind of been out here fighting the cause and just letting it all go, you know. And so Has that um, been enjoyable or is that you know, making you nuts? It's, it's, it's now probably getting to the point where it's not as enjoyable because, you know, you start going, well, your title in life is a writer and if I'm not writing um, I'm not a writer so I should start to write something so I'm at that point now like maybe I should start making a little notes and maybe picking out an idea that I'm passionate about you know that's the thing too is like I haven't been really passionate about anything either except for the strike so it's like, you know, now maybe at, you know, three months in, 12 weeks later, I can feel that. Here's some other gentlemen you should probably talk to. I will. Well. But first, I have another question for you. Now, as Bobby pointed out earlier, he had a little hit single of a spoken word piece he did called Suicide. It was very entertaining and um, very, uh, very good argument for why one shouldn't commit suicide. Absolutely. Now... As you entered into the strike, did you ever think back on that song and think, maybe I was wrong? No, not at all, man. I I really don't think there's anything in this world (laughs) worth killing yourself over. I don't care if it's your parents, uh, a lover, whatever it is, man. And because I have parents, whether they were good, bad, or indifferent, I've had lovers, I've been high as a kite on a multitude of dogs, and they've never thought, you know what would be good right now? Killing myself. You know, I've never thought that ever. That wasn't even really. Yeah, a I know real it wasn't. Uh, that's why I was kind of going down that road <laughs> with it. But uh, no. Final question, Bobby. What's a more important invention, the internet or the printing press? <laughs> Good question, actually. Um, well, I, I got to say, probably the printing press because it's gotten us to where we are now. That's a very succinct answer. Do Thank you. Do you write haikus? I do not. You don't? I don't. Well, I guess we won't ask him to. Though. Yeah. You okay. need a haiku? We need a strikeu. Ah, yeah, there you go. I do not know. Maybe one of these boys. Yeah. The guy with well, the you're WGA. Asking Asian boys. <laughs> the guy with the WGA oh, carved in the back of his head. Too bad you wasn't on camera. <laughs> He's got there's a guy that's committed. He actually went and had WGA carved into his skull. 
Not a tattoo, but because that would really be dedication. <laughs> if you got a tattoo, no, your hair would grow and cover it. But he got it shaved in his head. WGA. It should be noted that Bobby had no idea what he was going to say or if he'd be able to say anything. And boy, yeah, has he come. Now we can't shut him up. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Bobby, thank you very hey, much. Hey, man, my pleasure. You have been listening to the Rider Strike Chronicle podcast, available for free through iTunes. For more information, visit us at www.strikechronicles.com. To contact us, please call 310-439-8754 or send us an email at info at strikechronicles.com.